This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have your word, that you have revealed yourself to us in a unique way. Down through the ages, over a period of in exceeding 2,000 years, through over 40 different authors, you have revealed to us yourself. You've revealed to us who we are as creatures in your image and likeness who have fallen due to sin and who are desperately in need of redemption and sanctification. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and to instruct us and to give us a correct view of life and of the world and of your plan and purposes for history, that we are moving toward an ultimate goal, and that is the establishment when Jesus returns of a kingdom on this earth, the likes of which has never been seen but has been promised and prophesied down through the ages in Old Testament passages as well as new. And now, fathers, we continue our study in Matthew. We pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, that we may come to understand the important principles that we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, and that we may understand how to apply these things into our lives, and that God the Holy Spirit would drive these truths deep into our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're in verse 9 this morning, and this is perhaps one of those most misunderstood passages in the Sermon on the Mount. There are several passages we find in the Sermon on the Mount where there are verses that have been ripped out of context and used in various uh, contemporary settings that have absolutely nothing to do with the original context. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, as we have studied in the previous weeks in our, in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, I have pointed out that this is Jesus' instruction to his disciples. It's very important to understand that context in verse 1, that he takes a seated position like a rabbi and his disciples gather around him. This is not a term for his the general crowd yet. He is giving instruction to those whom he has recently called. This is important for us to understand because he is teaching those who are already saved and justified 
how to live. He is not in any way, shape, or form giving conditions for how people can come to be saved, that is, to come to the point where they're going to have eternal life and spend eternity with God uh, in the future kingdom and in heaven. And that's important because many times these passages are misconstrued. And it's important to understand this and vital to understand this, that he is teaching about uh, the kind of character that should be developed for those who will have a significant role in the future kingdom. It is couched within the message that John the Baptist originally gave to Israel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When John the Baptist was imprisoned, Jesus began more of his public ministry. He took up the same message as did his disciples when he sent them out initially to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The focal point at this stage in this teaching ministry of the Lord is still calling uh, Israel to repentance. That is a change of mind, a change of direction to turn away from uh, false religion, to turn away from the legalistic religion of the uh, Jewish leadership, and to turn to a worship of the God of Abraham uh, Isaac and Jacob, and following the Mosaic Law, because they are still under the Mosaic Law. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, as we have seen, also has application to church-age believers, because the focal point here wasn't simply or only or exclusively directed to the Jews of his day under the Mosaic Law, but he's emphasizing the kind of character that should be developed by true disciples, those who not true believers. Anyone can be a believer in Jesus Christ, but not all believers are disciples. And those who are disciples are those who accept the challenge to grow to spiritual maturity. These are they who will have a significant role in the future kingdom. All church-age believers will be in the kingdom, but not all will have significant positions ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we're looking at the topic, continuing in the Beatitudes, uh, each of which begins with the phrase blessed, which means to be happy. So this section I'm calling How to Be Happy. We're in the fifth part uh, on this, on the Sermon on the Mount. Peacemakers are identified as sons of God. So this section from 5.3 down to 5.16 is emphasizing the character and calling of those who inherit the kingdom, which is not a synonym for getting saved. It, is, it indicates those who have a special uh, role in the future kingdom, a special possession. And so we see our verse, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, this verse is really open to a lot of abuse, especially in modern times. I did a search on various images this morning just to see what might show up, and this was perhaps my favorite simply because I'm a fan of uh, American frontier history, and I particularly like the whole story of the of Wyatt Earp and the Earp brothers and Tombstone. And uh, when he left Dodge City, the citizens of Dodge City gave him a... Uh, cult peacemaker, and there was a, uh, a martial star uh, placed on the 
on the uh, handle that says Wyatt Earp Peacemaker. Now, is that what the Bible means when it talks about being a peacemaker? Well, some of the other distortions are seen in some of these images. Uh, in the, from the time of the 60s, there were even some evangelicals, usually those on the political left, even though they were to some degree conservative in their theology, who used this verse as a pretext for Christian social activism, and especially during the era of the Vietnam War, as a pretext for anti-war activism. And as you can see from these various images I put up here, there's a lot of distortion here. And this comes as a result of Christians who do not take the time to actually study the Scripture and to examine what the Bible teaches. We must understand the Scripture in light of other Scripture. We must understand Scripture in light of the times in which it was written, which means we understand it contextually, not only contextually in terms of the immediate context in which something is written or something is said, but also the context of biblical, uh, biblical theology. But it's important to understand just in terms of reading through a passage such as the Sermon on the Mount and the opening uh, introduction in the Beatitudes that the Beatitudes are not an action plan. The way they are stated is simply as character attributes. They describe character qualities of mature believers, mature disciples, who are prepared for the future rule of Jesus in the promised messianic kingdom. They are not a uh, an action plan to go out and do something, but that it focuses on personal character traits. To take a verse such as this or any of the others as a basis for social action is to pervert the purpose of Scripture and to rip the verses completely out of context. Now, one of my favorite statements I ran across here as it's talking about the concept of peace is a statement that the scarcity of peace uh, in this world is uh, such that peace is defined as that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. <laughs> that plays well in Texas. Some people have looked at this verse as, as I said, as social activism, that it really should be understood to mean blessed are those who make this world a better place to live in. That, again, is not what this is talking about. If we go back in church history, we discover that the early church fathers understood this to be emphasizing the personal aspect of peace or tranquility with God or reconciliation. And so uh, we see this as the earliest uh, interpretation, and this is very important in terms of understanding the, the context. Others have emphasized the fact that one of the, um, uh, pre, uh, or one, of the um, one background for this statement is found in the Old Testament in the rabbinic uh, position that the uh, highest task which a man can perform is to establish right relationships between man and man. Uh, Hillel, who was a famous rabbi in, prior to the time of Christ, 
stated, Be ye of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace. But we must first understand that the greatest enemy, according to Scripture, of peace is sin. And sin has its primary disruptive factor in relation to our our relationship with God, not to other men. And so to understand peace and peacemaking biblically, we have to understand that ultimately this involves our relationship with God. This is something that we see uh, taught in the Old Testament. Just a couple of passages to show its context. As I've pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to a Jewish background audience who has responded to the message of the kingdom. So he is giving an inter- divine interpretation of the kind of righteousness that should characterize those who are going to be in the future kingdom. So there's an Old Testament context to what he is saying, and we need to understand that as the background to whatever is said here as we go through and see how it's reinforced as well in the New Testament. In Isaiah 53.5, we have a passage that we are all very familiar with, part of the uh, servant text in Isaiah, prophecies related to the coming Messiah. And especially in Isaiah 53.5, we have passages related to the suffering Messiah. And in Isaiah 53.5, we read that he was wounded for our transgressions. This is one of the great passages on substitutionary atonement, that the servant will uh, suffer in our place. He will be penalized and punished for our sins. So he is wounded for our transgressions in our place. He's bruised for our iniquities. He is the one who is paying the penalty for sin. The third line states the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And so here we see that even in the Old Testament, the context of peace is grounded in peace with God. And for there to be peace with God, the sin problem has to be taken care of. That all of the ills of human history, all of the wars, all of the crime, all of the hostility, all of the violence, all has its roots in a sin problem. And it is not until the sin problem is dealt with that there can ever be uh, peace enjoyed in the human race. And so the prophecy from the Old Testament is that the sin problem will be taken care of by the Messiah, and he will pay the punishment so that we can have peace. And Isaiah 57:19, also in the predictive section of Isaiah, focusing on the future uh, kingdom, we read I, God saying, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. This is quoted in Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 14 and following, talking about uh, peace, being announced to both Gentile, I mean both Jews who are near because of their covenant relationship with God, as well as Gentiles who are far off because they are not in a covenant relationship to God. And so God is the one who provides the basis for peace, and God is the one who can establish peace. So that gives us our Old Testament context. Now when we look at the passage in question, 
where we read, Blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, we should ask three interpretive questions. It's very important to get to the core of what Jesus is teaching here. The first question is, with whom is peace made? With whom is peace made? We are making peace, but between who? What's the context biblically? Are we making peace between human beings, or are we making peace between man and God? The second question that needs to be answered is, by what methods is peace made? How are we establishing peace? Is this something that is done through a U.N. resolution? Is this something that is done through an act of Congress? Is this something that is accomplished through uh, some form of social activism? Or is something else intended? And then the third question we should answer is by what or whose standards is peace determined? How are we going to know if we have peace? We have to determine, is it peace at any cost? Or are there standards by which we determine whether or not we will have peace? When we look at the life of Christ, we understand that Jesus certainly could not be using the term peace in some absolute sense, as some people take it, at the expense of everything else and everybody else. In fact, when Jesus came, he said to his disciples in Matthew 10:34, "Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth." See, he's using it in a slightly different sense here. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So Jesus is not talking about establishing a peace that is at the expense of truth. He's not talking about establishing a peace that is at the expense of right and wrong. He's not talking about establishing a peace that is at the expense of righteousness. He's not talking about establishing a peace that is for the sake of peace. There are times when it is right in this fallen world to not have peace, when there are conditions that peace is not going to be possible because we live in a fallen world, we live in the devil's world, and we live in a world where corrupt fallen sinners often will only produce that which is characteristic of their father, the devil. So to understand Matthew 5.9, we have to look at the terminology that is used here. The word that is translated into English is the Greek word, arene poias. It's a compound word from arene, meaning peace, and the verb poieo, meaning to do or to make. It is simply a noun here. It's the only occurrence of this noun in the New Testament. But a verb form of this noun is used in one other location. The verb form is a, a, a reno poieo, and it means to make peace. And this is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, we read, And by him, to, that is by Christ, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
because he has made peace through the blood of his cross. So here we see the verb form, he made peace, that is Christ made peace through the blood of the cross, through his death on the cross. We have seen in many studies that the phrase blood of the cross or the blood of Christ is not a literal term. It is a term that is a figurative term indicating a violent death. The uh, imagery from this idiom goes back to passages such as the covenant with Noah, where uh, God said that those who shed man's blood should have their blood shed. That is a prohibition against murder. It is the foundation for capital punishment. But it is not saying that this is only applies to cases where somebody literally has their physical blood shed. Throughout the scripture, we see this imagery, this idiom to shed blood as a picture of a violent form of death. It is not Jesus' physical death on the cross that paid the penalty for sin because he announced that his payment for sin was completed before he died physically. It was during that period between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that day when he hung on the cross that God the Father imputed to Christ the sins of the world. He bore in his body on the cross the penalty for our sin. When it was complete, he said to Telestai, it is finished. It has been completed. It's a perfect tense indicating that it is already completed action. And it was after he had paid the penalty for sin, which was spiritual death, the penalty for sin in Genesis 2 was stated to be spiritual death. So the penalty that Christ paid was spiritual death. And then he died physically, went into the grave for three days and three nights, and then was resurrected from the, from the dead. So it is through the death of Christ on the cross that the penalty for sin is paid for. Now, this becomes the foundation, as we see in Galatians 1.20, for the biblical teaching, the biblical doctrine of reconciliation. Uh, God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. What brought that breach between the human race and God was sin, the sin of Adam. When Adam, not when Eve ate of the fruit, but when Adam, as the designated head of the family, and the designated head of the human race disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he came under condemnation. He immediately died as God had warned in Genesis 2.17 that in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. At that instant, Adam died and it plunged the human race into uh, death and corruption. In Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 12, it is in Adam all die, not in Eve all die. In Adam, because he was the designated head of the race. And so someone needed to uh, provide a solution because from the time of Adam's sin until the present and until the uh, future heavens, new heavens and new earth are established, those who are born with a corrupt sin nature are born at enmity with God. Enmity is the exact opposite of recon reconciliation. 
And so that enmity has to be dealt with, and this is what was provided for by Jesus Christ on the cross. The key term that is used to describe this in many passages, such as, such as Romans 5.1, is peace. And we read about peace also in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 14 and following this morning. But peace is used in different ways in Scripture. And so we have to understand that as we look at this study, because when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, we have to understand what, in what sense he's t- using that term peace. Today, people often take that to be an absence of violence, an absence of war, an absence of criminality. Yet we do not find that to be a primary meaning in Scripture. The first meaning that we see uh, uh, mentioned a lot in Scripture is the idea of inner tranquility and contentment. It's often used not in contrast to war or violence, but in contrast to fear, anxiety, worry, various forms of inner stress. We're all familiar with the promise in Philippians 4, 5, and 6, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The focal point there is this this peace is a supernatural peace. It comes from God. It is also mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 and following, that this is not simply reconciliation to God, but this has to do with an inner mental attitude of peace. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 14:27 when he said, uh, "My peace, peace I leave with leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid." So in this context, as well as Philippians 4 and other passages, um, this is not talking about uh, conflict, external conflict of physical violence, but it's talking about inner contentment, the opposite of fear, worry, anxiety. It's used as a, also to describe the state of reconciliation with God, as we see in Romans 5.1. Therefore, because it's a causal participle there, therefore, because we have been justified by faith, we have, as a present possession, Peace with God, because at the point in time when you trusted in Jesus as Savior, when you believed the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, at that instant, God declared you to be justified. He imputed to you the righteousness of Christ and declared you to be justified. So justification here is understood to be something that occurred in the past at the moment of salvation. And as a result of that, we are in an ongoing state of peace with God because our sins have been uh, dealt with in the cross and we have accepted that payment on our behalf. This is also part of the gospel that we announce. We see this in passages such as Romans 10:15. How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach or proclaim the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the message of peace, the message of reconciliation. 
Ephesians 6.15 says the same thing, that having shod your feet, and when it's talking about the armor of God, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So an important aspect of the gospel is announcing that there is peace between man and God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This, of course, is uh, foundational in understanding Galatians 1.20, where it is used to speak not simply of reconciliation, but the entirety. Reconciliation often speaks of the entirety of the work of Christ upon the cross. Galatians 1.20, by God, by God, by Christ, to reconcile all things to himself by him, that is, by Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is the Greek word apokatalasso, which indicates a complete and total reconciliation. It's used both in Colossians 1.20 and in Ephesians 2.16, that he might reconcile them both. And there it is talking about, about Jews and Gentiles being reconciled, that the, that the wall of division between them is torn down, which was the law, but also that Jew and Gentile are separated by a barrier from God, and that too is removed at the cross, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, so that that status of enmity and hostility between the rebellious sinner and God is destroyed objectively at the cross, through Christ's work of reconciliation. So reconciliation is then defined as the work of God for man in which God undertakes to transform man's position of hostility to, to one of peace in order to make possible an actual eternal fellowship with a righteous and just God. Now that's sort of a mouthful, so let me explain what I mean. It's the work of God. Man cannot reconcile himself to God. God is the one who performs the work, and it was performed on the cross when Christ paid the penalty for sin. We talk about all of the different dimensions of man's problem. He has the problem of sin itself, the problem of the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death or separation from God. He is born spiritual dead, spiritually dead, so there's the problem of, of his birth. Uh, in terms of being born spiritually dead, there's a problem of his position in Adam. We're born in Adam. All of these things are just different aspects or components to the sin problem. All of these different components were addressed by different aspects of Christ's death. He pays the penalty for sin in redemption. He satisfies the character of God in propitiation. He... Uh, atones for our sin. He reconciles us to God. All of these are different aspects of the work of Christ on our behalf. So it's God's work for man, and what happened is God undertook to transform man's position of hostility. We are born at enmity with God. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, while we were in a state of hostility to him, when we were still obnoxious to God, he demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So God is in the process of transforming our position of hostility to one of peace. This is done objectively, as I said, at the cross. That doesn't mean because Christ reconciled man that every individual is automatically reconciled. It means that the foundation or the basis for reconciliation uh, is accomplished at the cross, but each individual has to make a decision as to whether or not that applies to their own life, and that is related to trusting Christ as Savior. That by accepting the gospel, accepting Christ's payment for our sin, then we can have eternal fellowship with a righteous and just God. But the issue in application is our volition. So, second point on this is that reconciliation was accomplished forensically. There's an important word if you like those... uh, Uh, CSI shows, you understand that forensics has to do with the courtroom. And it's in the courtroom that we have the payment for sin. All of this terminology related to what Christ does on the cross has to do with the courtroom, that man in Adam disobeyed God, violated his standard, and came under a judicial penalty. Jesus Christ paid the judicial penalty on the cross, And we're told through the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone that when we trust in Christ, God judicially imputed to us the righteousness of Christ and declared us to be righteous. That's called technically in Protestant theology forensic justification. It's not a term you hear pastors preach about a lot, but that's how it is referred, uh, how it is described. Reconciliation, therefore, was accomplished forensically, that is, in relation to the justice of God at the cross once and for all. But reconciliation must be applied to each believer uh, positionally when they trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. That is a doctrine of reconciliation. So, what we learn is, number one, that the human race is born in a legal state of hostility toward God. Every human being is born spiritually dead. They're under a legal condemnation from God. And apart from faith in Christ, they remain under that state of condemnation, which has as its eternal penalty the lake of fire. Second point, no fallen human being can change that state of hostility. There is nothing we can do. We cannot perform anything good enough, righteous enough to merit God's approval. All of our works of righteousness, Isaiah says, are filthy rags. Third, the opposite of hostility is peace or harmony with God. And so there has to be a change of our status In order for there to be a change of our status, the legal penalty must be paid and that this payment is accomplished through death, that is the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ on the cross. This is seen in passages such as what I read earlier this this morning, Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, there Paul is talking to the Gentiles because they were not in a covenant relationship with God in the Old Testament. He says, now you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The death of Christ objectively pays that penalty. And then in verse 14 he says, for he himself, referring to Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace 
who has made both one, and the both there refers to Jew and Gentile, who by faith in Christ are united as one in the body of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That middle wall of separation, that which separated Jew and Gentile was the law. That's which separated Jew and Gentile from God was sin. And so we read in verse 15, because he abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is that hostility toward God and the hostility toward between Jew and Gentile because of the law. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. There we have that terminology again of making peace, and that he might reconcile them both, that's both Jew and Gentile, to God. So you have a horizontal reconciliation between Jew and Gentile that's accomplished on the cross, and you have a vertical reconciliation that takes place because Christ has paid the penalty for sin. So we are both reconciled to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So that state of hostility is destroyed objectively at the cross by Christ's death. So when we read in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, this is not talking about those who are creating social peace or political peace or peace where there's been war and violence. But this is talking about those who are proclaiming the gospel of peace, those who are proclaiming that there is the gospel, that there is one and only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Now, a third way in which peace is used in the scriptures is in relation to interpersonal harmony, but this is always based on the realities of forgiveness of sin. There has to be, something has to address the problem that causes a breach. If there is a status of hostility between human beings, that has to be addressed. Just as when there was a state of hostility between man and God, that had to be addressed. It just could not be ignored. And it is only on the basis of addressing the cause of the conflict that harmony can be truly restored in relationships. But this is to be also a priority in the life of the believer. Romans 14:19 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, it doesn't mean that we can always accomplish it. It's not creating peace in relationships at all costs. There is a foundation. There's a standard. But we are to pursue peace with all men, as Hebrews 12:14 states, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Second Corinthians 13:11, the top verse on the screen. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. In other words, be mature. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. As part of the Christian life, we are to seek to have peace and harmony with all men. That will not always be possible because other people have volition. They can, they're sinners, they're fallen, they're corrupt, and they may not make it possible for us to have peace. But that is to be their responsibility, not ours. 
The peace that we pursue is not a peace without standards. For Paul says in Galatians 6.16, And as many as, as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy upon them. The peace and mercy is upon those who walk according to a standard. It is not without regard to a standard or to an absolute. It is not peace at any cost, but peace according to the standard of God's righteousness. And then a fourth use of peace in the New Testament is that it is a primary characteristic of the future messianic kingdom. When we are making peace today by the proclamation of the gospel, it is to provide a basis for people to have eternal life and they will be in the kingdom in the future that is established by Jesus Christ. This aspect of peace in the kingdom is seen in the titles of Christ. For example, in a verse familiar to most, Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He is the one who establishes peace with God, and only upon the basis of his rule will there actually be uh, peace, political peace, world peace in his kingdom. Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The future millennial messianic kingdom will be characterized by peace. But today we have been given a mission as believers, a mission related to the message of reconciliation. This is seen in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. There Paul writes, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. God performs the work of reconciliation. He did this through Christ, and he has given us the message of reconciliation. That's the gospel of peace. We have been given this message, the responsibility to announce this message of peace. That is, Paul goes on to explain it in verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Why? Because he imputed their trespasses to Christ, and Christ paid the penalty on the cross so that reconciliation could be accomplished. And he has, that is, God has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. Then he draws a conclusion in verse 20. Now then we, that is, believers in Jesus Christ, are ambassadors for Christ. We represent his kingdom to a fallen world. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. The human race is objectively reconciled to God by the work of Christ on the cross, but they haven't received that personally. It is our responsibility as believers to spread the gospel, the good news of which is described as the gospel of peace. And Paul characterizes it this way. It is as if we are imploring people to be or to realize this reconciliation in their own life by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, as we look at the second half of this verse, we're told happy are the peacemakers, that is, those who are proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Now, there are some who read this and think, well, that means that in order to be called a son of God, to become a son of God or to be saved, you must be spreading the gospel. You must be a peacemaker. But this is a different term than that which is used in John 1.12. John 1.12 says there are many, as many as received him, that is, who trusted in Christ as Savior, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God, not sons of God here, but children of God. The concept of becoming a son of God is recognizing our uh, adult position as children, uh, being an adult son and receiving all of the privileges of our adoption which occurred at salvation. Scripture uses this idiom many times to become the, be, to, to be the son of something. It originates as a Hebrew idiom that is talking about having the characteristics of whatever the noun is that follows it. So if you're a murderer in Hebrew, you may be described as a son of a murderer. If you are a fool, you would be described as a son of a fool. Uh, if you are following uh, destruction and following the devil, you'd be called a son of Belial. So this is a typical idiom. So to be called the sons of God means that you are exhibiting the characteristics of God in your life. And as we've studied, one of the characteristics of God is that he initiated the process of reconciliation to reconcile the world to himself. So when we are witnessing to other people, evangelizing others, proclaiming the gospel of peace, then what we are doing is demonstrating that we are following in the footsteps of our Father in heaven who is reconciling the world to himself. He is the God of peace. Now, in conclusion, I want to go back and review the questions that I asked earlier. When we look at this passage, we need to uh, answer the question, with whom is peace made? Peace in Scripture is first and foremost made between fallen human beings and God. How is peace made? What are the methods? There's only one, and that is Christ on the cross paying the penalty for sin so that the enmity, the hostility between man and God can be removed. The next question, by what standards is peace determined? Peace is determined by God's standard that there is only peace when sin has been uh, correctly dealt with. And so we recognize that our Father in heaven is the God of peace, as Romans 15.33 states, the God of peace be with you all. And so to exhibit our sonship, we too function as those who call the unsaved to peace with God through trusting in Christ who provided the possibility of reconciliation only on the basis of his death on the cross with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to receive a challenge from this passage that emphasizes a character, quality of those who are prepared to rule and reign in the future kingdom, that we are peacemakers, that we are those who proclaim the gospel, that we are concerned about the state of enmity between human beings and you, and that we proclaim the message of reconciliation, imploring those who are lost 
to be reconciled to you, that we might have a heart's desire to see the lost saved and to recognize that this is part of our primary mission as ambassadors from your throne to call people to a state of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, so that simply by trusting in him, not by works, not by church membership, not by baptism, not by any other human activity, simply by faith in Christ, you might understand or you might come to have eternal salvation and realize that reconciliation in your life that Christ provided for at the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with this message, for we must recognize that we must see our character transform more and more as we pursue spiritual maturity, that we might be disciples indeed of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.